The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, a cruise through the turbulent waters of time, a twisted ebook sale, and I talk to the editors of and some of the contributors to the new anthology, The Founder Effect, all while we wait for the ball to drop on the new year. And of course, we continue our ongoing serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. Today, we're ringing in the new year with part one of my conversation with the editors of and some of the contributors to the all-new anthology, The Founder Effect. It's an anthology of linked stories out now in trade paperback and ebook formats. I was joined by Robert E. Hampson and Sandra L. Medlock, who edited the book, as well as contributors Mark H. Wandry, Catherine L. Smith, Brent Roeder, and David Weber. The far-ranging conversation was a lot of fun, so much fun that we went well over our allotted time, which is why we'll only be featuring the first half of the conversation today. Part two will follow next week. But first, the news. Does everybody know what time it is? I can hear the 90s kids and Tim Allen fans of all ages shouting tool time at me. But in this case, it's time for Bain's January Twisted Time ebook sale. To mark the debut of The Macedonian Hazard by Eric Flint, Gorg Huff, and Paula Goodlett this month, save on Twisted Time ebooks by Eric Flint and others. For example, get $2 off The Alexander Inheritance by Eric Flint, Gorg Huff, and Paula Goodlett, and $1 off Time Spike by Eric Flint and Marilyn Kosmatka. And also save on the Arcane America series. Get $2 off Council of Fire by Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt, and $1 off Uncharted by Kevin J. Anderson and Sarah A. Hoyt, and Collar of Lightning by Peter J. Wax and Etan Colin. Ebook discounts apply wherever Bain ebooks are sold. Sale begins January 3rd and ends January 31st, that's 2021, at midnight. And speaking of the Macedonian hazard, it hits bookstore shelves in hardcover and virtual bookstore shelves in ebook on January 5th. Stranded in a distant past of hope and strife, cruise ship Queen of the Sea has been accidentally transported from the modern day present to the ancient Mediterranean not long after the death of Alexander the Great. Now Captain Lars Floden and the other ship people attempt to plant the seeds of 21st century civilization in the distant past. Although they have alliances among the locals, upstart heir Cassander is using foul means to claim Macedonia and Greece. Brutal general Antigonus One-Eye is doing the same in Mesopotamia, and Pharaoh Ptolemy, the cleverest of them all, is expanding his Egyptian realm to the Red Sea. It's a strange brew that has a chance to transform history and help humanity avoid centuries of strife. That is, if it doesn't kill everyone first. The Macedonian Hazard, out now in hardcover and ebook by Eric Flint, Gorg Huff, and Paula Goodlett. And now, part one of my conversation with Robert E. Hampson, Sandra L. Medlock, David Weber, Mark H. Wandry, Catherine L. Smith, and Brent Roeder about the all-new anthology, The Founder Effect. 
All right, we are here with the editors and a few of the contributors to the new anthology, The Founder Effect, which is out now from Bain Books in trade paperback and ebook formats. Uh, it can be purchased anywhere you buy your trade paperbacks or ebooks. Uh, also at Bain.com, if you like to have them DRM free, we always like to point that out to people. Uh, let's go ahead and meet everyone who's here today. First up, we have the co-editor, Robert E. Hampson, PhD. He turns science fiction into science in his day job and puts the science into science fiction in his spare time. He is a professor of physiology, pharmacology, and neurology with over 35 years experience in animal neuroscience and human neurology. His professional work includes more than 100 peer-reviewed research articles, ranging from the pharmacology of memory to the first report of a neural prosthetic to restore human memory using the brain's own neural codes. He consults with authors to put the hard science in hard SF and has written both fiction and nonfiction for Bain Books. His own hard SF and military SF have been published by the U.S. Army Small Wars Journal, Springer, Seventh Seal Press, and of course, Bain. He is a member of Sigma Think Tank and the Science and Entertainment Exchange, a service of the National Academy of Sciences. And it's not in, in the book here, but you also co-edited Homo Stellaris, or what do we call it? Uh, st people Stellaris. Of the, Stellaris, People of the Star. That was, I, I was the working title with Les Johnson. So uh, Rob, thanks so much for uh, being on the podcast. Thank you. And his co-editor, Sandra L. Medlock, started her career as an editor and writer by reviewing environmental impact studies for the U.S. Air Force. She transitioned to editing for a private publisher and over time worked in the legal department for an oil company, reviewing briefs and filings. Sandra moved to corporate writing and editing procedural and policy manuals. Her interest in computers and software led her to a shift in her career as director and corporate trainer for two independent training companies and the IT department of a global manufacturer, where she wrote training curricula as well as company newsletters. I know a little bit about that. Uh, if you read the Bain newsletter, uh, that's me. So we have a common, I don't know, whatever background here. As a freelance journalist, Sandra wrote a weekly music column, a weekly technology column, and a monthly lifestyles column for three regional newspapers, including the San Antonio Express News, she wrote freelance computer technology magazine articles and uh, created and edited newsletters for several organizations and was the producer of two computer shows on local radio. Currently, Sandra tutors in math and English to students, provides an editing service, teaches music and writes fiction. Uh, she lives outside of San Antonio, Texas with her husband, two very demanding small dogs and a senior cat who has perfected Chewbacca's whale. I wonder if we'll hear that in the background or is he, uh, he's shut out of the room, baby. He's shut out of the room. <laughs> well, he's very for, loud. <laughs> for being on. Uh, Catherine L. Smith earned a BS in entomology and a BS in, well, I don't even, agronomy. That's okay. From the University of Wisconsin and subsequently an MS in entomology from the University of Tennessee. She currently works as a molecular biologist tracking veterinary disease strains for autogenous. Who, you guys putting these science words in these bios? <laughs> autogenous. Autogenous. The word is autogenous. Autogenous, okay. Vaccine production. I'm an English major, which maybe it means I should be able to read them. But uh, 
anyways, autogenous vaccine production where she uses next-gen sequencing and I'm going to let you say this word, metagen metagenomic? Yep. All right. Techniques to aid in diagnostics and novel <laughs> discovery. Kathy has been a consultant on alien design for numerous science fiction authors and finally began writing her own stories. Uh, we got the Texas Coalition here, a native Texan by birth. If not, oh, this is Christopher Smith. Oh, I read in. You're not a Texan. Okay. Well, are you, Kathy? Are you Texan? No. Okay. We'll, no. we'll honor um, it. <laughs> at, at best, uh, I'm a cheesehead. Um, okay. <laughs> I ran into the next bio there. I, the, the page pagination was such. All right. Moving on, though. Thank you for being on the show and uh, for helping me with those science words. Uh, international best-selling author of military sci-fi, space opera, and zombie apocalypse, Mark H. Wandry, is also the only four-time Dragon Con Dragon Award finalist. His most successful work to date can be found in the Four Horsemen universe, which he created and now shares with a slew of incredible authors, including his writing partner and publisher, Chris Kennedy. The first book in the series, Cartwright's Cavaliers, was his second Dragon Award finalist in 2017. With more than 40 titles available and more every month, uh, if you love military science fiction, this is the series for you. Living the full-time RV lifestyle as a modern-day nomad with his wife, Joy, and two chihuahuas, Mark Wandry has been writing science fiction since he was in grade school. He launched his professional career in 2004, and now, uh, I guess it says 15, but I guess it's 16 years later, he has written more than 25 books and dozens of short stories, though in that one year, you may have topped that. I'm not sure what the current count is. Uh... Oh, can't hear you, muted, Mark. Are you muted? <laughs> yeah, it helps, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah it said 44 Horseman books. We're actually over 60 now. So Okay, good. there you go. And uh, I messed up my alphabet alphabetization, but let me go back and get Brent M. Is it Roter? I realized I didn't ask you how to say it, Brent. Roter. Brent M. Roter. He is a neuroscience PhD candidate researching how to restore damaged memory function. A lifelong geek, he enjoys world building and writing sci-fi and fantasy to relax from work. And very occasionally, he even remembers to finish a story. Of course, we finished the one here in the Founder Effect. Brent, thanks so much for coming on. And finally, uh, Mr. David Weber. He was born in Cleveland a long, long time ago. He wrote that, I didn't say that, and grew up in rural South Carolina, or someone wrote that, not me. He was a bookworm from childhood, blessed with a father who collected autographed copies of every E.E. E. Doc Smith hardcover and introduced him to Jack Williamson at the tender age of 10 and a mother who ran her own ad agency and encouraged him to write. From that start with a love of history from a very early age and as a practitioner of RPGs before the world had ever heard of something called Dungeons and Dragons, it was inevitable. He would fall into evil company and become a writer of science fiction himself. He sold his first novel to Jim Bain, his enabler at Bain Books in 1989. Since that time, he has perpetrated 67 solo and collaborative novels, with two more delivered, those two more may have already come out. You know, this publishing is, the wheels of publishing turn slowly. And an unconscionable number of anthologies upon an innocent and unsuspecting public. He is perhaps best known for his character, Honor Harrington, whom he hopes never to meet in a dark alley, given all the bones she has to pick with him. 
fans should be warned never to press the talk button because if they do, they will never get him to shut up again. So settle in everyone for the podcast. David Weber, thank you so much for coming back on the Bain Free Radio Hour. Thanks for putting up with me. I mean, you know. Of course. Of course. Uh, well, we're here to talk about the founder effect, uh, this new anthology, which is, it's interesting. It is an anthology of short stories, but it very much, there it is. I've got my lovely copy here. Um, but it's there, it tells a sort of a cohesive story in a way. Um, but before we talk about that, uh, I want to talk about what the founder effect is, uh, what that term means, and then how it relates to the book. And I think probably our editors, uh, Rob or Sandra, if you want to tackle that one. Go ahead, sure. Rob. <clears throat> so the founder effect is actually a uh, biological term and primarily refers to genetics. <clears throat> Excuse me. What often happens when a colony is formed and it's cut off from the parent group, the very often you will find that the genetics of the founders uh, play a major role in the genetics of the colony much later in time. So, you start off with, let's say you start off with 20 or 30 subjects in a colony. And at some point in the future, when it's now thousands, you will find traces of the genetics of the, uh, of the original founders of a colony. And so they've made their mark on that society in the form of the genes that are shared among the entire group. And so for our purposes, the founder effect is the mark that the colonists are going to leave on the future, whether it's their genetics, whether it's the society, the science, and in this case, the myths and the legends. Yeah, and uh, Sandra, maybe you could talk about just sort of, as I mentioned, this is uh, sort of a it's not really a novel in stories, but it's close. It tells a, an overarching story uh, within these within these individual or these individual stories tell an overarching plot. Um, could you kind of just give us a as a co-editor a brief overview of what the founder effect is about? Uh, we mentioned the myths and legends of the people founding this colony, but maybe just explore that a little bit more. What was interesting is that we had. Um, people collaborating with each other. So as they were telling stories about what happened perhaps on the colony ships going out there, um, when they landed, um, we were really lucky to have people cross-reference things that were happening in other people's stories. And um, so in terms of editing, we had to make sure that we were keeping everything straight. Uh, even simple things like how many people were in a colony at a certain time um, out of all of the colonists that came there. Um, so basically we had people that were writing about legends and things that happened in the colonies. We had, um, we had Jimmy V who was um, uh, basically fighting a monster and the story just gets magnified as time goes on. When Rob was originally talking about it, he was saying, think of things like Paul Bunyan, 
um, and the stories that we have uh, that have come through history that we talk about, Baba Yaga, um, although we didn't really have any Baba Yaga in this book. Um, just things like that. So they, they were they were telling us stories that have happened um, just like you guys talk about maybe uh, Cowboys and Redskins game uh, from the past. Oh, wow, do you remember Troy Aikman doing this or, or Roger Staubach? So it's kind of the same thing, except we're talking another planets uh, or colonies out in space, that type of thing. Yeah, and this is a sort of near-ish future, uh, and it's, uh, I don't know if any one of the authors or either of you editors want to talk about just sort of the the bare bones, like what this is, a, is a, a, the Trappist system is discovered, and uh, we start a colony there. I don't know if, if I can do it, but if, if one of you all wants to jump in and kind of just lay that groundwork. Actually, I we, we all owe this to Tony Weisskopf. Uh, when the idea was pitched to Tony, Tony said, make it a shared world, make it a future history, give, uh, give an idea, pick a place, pick a colony, uh, and then say, okay, here's the timeline, here's the place. Then turn your authors loose and let them figure out what stories they want to tell. And I, I have to say, it was, it was a brilliant idea, and, and it worked. Uh, so we, that's all we did. We picked a, we picked a place, and we picked a, uh, we set up a timeline. <clears throat> and I will say that the first location that I picked was Trappist One, until I had one of the authors say, "You know that that won't work." And this is this is typical. We know that uh, we know that our readers are going to be the first ones to tell us that it doesn't work, right, David? <laughs> so, uh, so the in this case, the author said, oh, that won't work." So we uh, so we then had to pick it. We had to make a fictional system. But That's what happens when you let those NASA people play in your shared universe. <laughs> I know it's terrible. <laughs> Let me tell you, and then those NASA people come in to ask you, so, hey, what happens if we do this to our colony? Huh? Huh? What are the genetics going to look like 200 years from now? Um, well, you mentioned you kind of turned people loose. And in your afterward, you talked about um, two of our guests, uh, Mark Wandry and David Weber, and they both kind of, uh, one, two, three, I want that part. And how that sort of um, grew into, because I, um, I think, you know, in, in some ways, you each wrote an individual story, and then you co-wrote a story together toward the end. And it, to me, is almost kind of, it ties things up. Those kind of, th those kind of feel like they're a thread that's running through it, along and with others. completely by accident, too. What's well, that? It, it, well, it was and it wasn't. Um, because I was going to beat you to the call for a character. Exactly. You, you beat me, you beat me to the Prometheus. Um, and so, you know, I, I told, I told Rob, I said, I really want to do this. He said, well, Mark already grab spoke for that, that story. And he said, he said, so he said, so, you know, you, you might want to talk to him about it. So I called Mark and, and while we were talking. A four hour phone call later. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Okay, I had a shiny moment. What can I say? <laughs> uh, but in in the course of the conversation, um, my story 
uh, about uh, Jonah and the the original the original lander grew out of what he had told me. Okay, this is what he wanted to do with the Prometheus story, and he was talking about dealing with the sabotage and the computers and whatnot, and that led me to design the the short story with Jonah's computers um, having been been sabotaged. And the two stories, the first two stories, were not originally directly related. Okay, uh, when when Mark wrote his 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 final draft of Prometheus, his character has a relationship with my character, but she doesn't know it exists. If you yeah. if you follow what I'm saying. Um, and so when the, when she, can we do spoilers? Yeah. We do spoilers? Yeah, well, it's been out, it's been out long enough. Okay. Yeah. Well, basically she dies. Um, but before she dies, she actually finds Mark's guy's lost colony ship. He's managed through heroic efforts to rewrite enough code to get the ship, the, the 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 ship which is supposed to precede the colonists, the terraforming ship, the automated terraforming ship, to the system, but he couldn't quite get it across the finish line into orbit around the proper planet. So nobody knows it's there. It's in a cometary orbit, and she is in a a drifting spacecraft that has like twelve minutes left of uh, of uh, acceleration mass. Uh, when she realizes that she might be able to rendezvous, she she finds the ship. She might be able to rendezvous with it, but she chooses to die in order to save eleven more seconds of fuel, because she's not sure whether or not she has enough reaction mass to make it. So she she won't keep the power plant up, even though it will only save eleven seconds off of the end of the flight. Her husband and 49 other people are in cryo aboard the ship, but she also realizes how desperately the colony needs Prometheus. So she at, she sets up computer programs and she, she makes the rendezvous. Um, and uh, 70 odd years later, Prometheus is coming back on the cometary orbit um, and all of a sudden, the 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 uh, the colony ship, the mothership, starts picking up a transmission from Prometheus, who's been lost. That you know they knew it was lost in space, and Joni is bringing home Prometheus um, at a time when they really really need Prometheus brought home. Okay, and so that's kind of the the cycle that gets us through the, the, the original crises period and, and survival. And then Mark's portion of the final story. My half is here comes Joni kind of thing and, and the reaction to it. Mark is dealing with the, for want of a better term, almost the survivor's guilt in a way, I think of a guy who has been, Mark's character has in effect given up his sanity in order to save the colony in a lot of ways. I mean, that's how it reads to me. Joni gave up her life, okay, 
Yeah, and his initial, the funny thing was initially he was like picked for this job because he's a really selfish inward person who doesn't need other people because there was only going to be one human on that ship mm -hmm. and they wanted somebody who wouldn't be bothered by it. And he was certain he wouldn't be bothered by it. He really went because he was in love with David's character. So he literally abandoned his life and went halfway across the, you know, the parsec just for a chance to meet up with her at the other end. And when things go wrong, he ends up spending a years by himself and he finds out he's not quite as good at being by himself as he thought he would. I mean, who would be stuck yeah, in a spaceship yeah. for, for years and years? Yeah. Um, it's, there's a lot of influence and other stuff I've read over the years went into this. I really tried to channel what the situation would be like and I took influence from other people had written and was working with David for how we wanted to get to the end of it. And I wanted to get him to the end of it, but I knew he wouldn't be who he was yeah. when he left. This is kind of a guy who... <clears throat> It's Mark's take on the cold equation in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's got to, you know, and, and, and he's really and truly, okay, he's pretty much completely round the bend uh, by the time he finally gets to the planet. He, uh, he used kind of the last of his sanity to finish his job and put himself in a freezer, figuring he'd never come back out again. Yeah. Yeah, you know, he figured this is it. So, yeah. so when they wake him up later, that's that's a pretty good scene too. Well, and he wakes up to find that Joni is dead, and she's the only reason that he ever got thought out. Yeah, because she found the ship and, and brought it in. And, I want to, yeah, I want to toss in at this point a little bit about the continuity and the creating this world, the world building, because you've now heard. Uh, a little bit from Mark and David about how they thought of their characters and of the ships. I think it's important to say that all I gave to the authors was, and there's a ship that goes out. That's pretty much it. And that's going to take 160 years to get there. So they're going to have to, uh, they're going to have to have a rotating crew. And they're going to have to sleep. They're have, going to have to be in cryo. But you, okay. The original sketch did include the the automated lead oh, vessel didn't it you guys came up with that and oh. that's what i want to and that's what i want to emphasize you two came up with that idea almost at the and, same time yeah, yeah. And i could beat you david by like a day maybe or yeah something well like yeah okay be that way you know <laughs> yeah well you know it, it's, well but you know what here's the thing that's great about this is this is great about these cooperatives and in the four horsemen universe we do lots of anthology most of them are not tied together as closely as this one is so major kudos for David for saying, well, damn it, I wanted that, but let's figure this out. And for a speaker, obviously, for doing the same thing and coordinating this and letting it happen, because the end result is, I feel better than anything I could have done by myself, obviously. It's a, it's a great uh, bookend, you know, to write, to be, almost right to write the beginning and the end of the, board, the story was really an honor and just fun as hell to do, too. Yeah, well, I think, I think this, this was an example of successful synergy. Mm -hmm. um and yeah. it, it doesn't all it doesn't always work um and and this time this time it 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 clearly did um i just the whole concept of the of the anthology um the 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 founder effect the creation of legends uh and so forth that really spoke to me mm -hmm. because one of the things that that 
I tell people science fiction is a technical society's fairy tales yes. because it serves the same function that fairy tales did in a pre-technic civilization. They can be cautionary. They can be inspirational. They can mm -hmm. be all this stuff. Okay. And what we were dealing with here was a combination of the cautionary and the inspirational. Um, because what we were looking at, and I think Mark and I very much in, in our story, we were both looking at the extraordinary things that human beings can accomplish. Um, I have Honor Harrington in Uncompromising Honor say, you know, the two things that human beings make are tools and mistakes. Um, and but sometimes we get stuff right. Okay. Um, and I think that one of the proper functions of this genre is to remind people that we can get things right. Um, I told Rob, I, I used to do a panel at science fiction conventions. I'm thinking about starting to do it again, where the first question that I would ask the audience is, how many people out there have diabetes? And hands would go up and I'd say, how many people out there had, have ever had appendicitis? Hands will go up. Yeah, you can ask about 10, 15 questions. You get like almost every hand in the audience up. And then you say, congratulations, in a pre-technical society, you're all dead. Um, <laughs> and it kind of puts things into a perspective. And I think that's one of the things that science fiction does, is to try and put things into a perspective that is hopefully an entertaining story that you're glad you came for, but that also has a little bit of a clarifying lens effect, maybe. I don't know. I, I may be getting too pretentious here. No, no, no. There's a lot of there's a lot of the the crystal ball thing. Uh, what we do is almost the replacing of the crystal ball and the seers gazing into the ball and seeing these portents and images. And we do this from a technological point of view. I mean, you're absolutely right. No, and I was going to. Uh, quote, well-known elitist snob Larry Correa uh, from, from, the, uh, from the introduction, because, you know, he, he talks about um, the idea of legends. And you know, he says, uh, mankind runs on legends, whether they're examples of greatness to strive toward or evils to avoid. Every culture has its legends handed down and evolving through time. They're always with us, molding and shaping individuals, families, and whole societies. We're all products of the stories we grew up on. Uh, and I, I want to talk about that. Or I want to hear some of you authors and editors viewpoints on that. And then also maybe we can segue into the next paragraph, which he says, I'm talking about legends, not history, because they're not the same thing you know there's overlap but they're not always the same thing and um i just wanted to th wonder as you were writing this i guess david and mark we've heard a little bit about your approach to it but if this idea of uh these legends being instructive and the interplay between legend and history was something you kind of thought of as you were writing and as you were putting this thing together i mean obviously it's a major theme in the book i think but I think Kathy has a good example of that. Um, uh, yeah. Um, so in, in my story, Jackdaw Days, um, it's about someone who does something truly amazing for the colony, but 
she's forgotten because time goes on records get destroyed things aren't recorded the right way or you know she's too busy actually making it happen to really promote herself or promote what she did um and um you know it's it's and, and i kind of ran with this idea of you can do amazing things and still be forgotten or, or have the memory, or have the idea remembered, but have it remembered completely wrong. Yeah, that's that actually ran through the anthology. Um, uh, Mark's character uh, on the Prometheus, David Palmer, it's forgotten. Uh, David's character, uh, Joni, was remembered, but she was a person that events uh events did what events were going to do uh she was powerless to do anything about uh the event that that is central to the story and she just had to do the best uh kathy's character is one of uh someone who's the actual person is forgotten and only the legend lives on um uh in one of the other stories uh that we like to say is exemplified by the cover is a guy who all Jimmy V wanted to do was get the girl. Mm -hmm. He wanted to impress the girl. He was on a picnic and he had to fight the monster that was terrorizing the colony and he had to be a hero. Uh, we've got several other instances of that. And then I think the ultimate of that is in Brent's characters in his story, um, the, uh, the loss of beaver flight, because I know for a fact that the person he based one of his characters on would be would tell you that he would be the farthest thing from a hero, and so and so Brent used that. And in fact, the motivation of the main character is he's upset that he thinks other people are trying to make him look bad by trying to crash a spaceship, and he's not going to let anyone make him look bad while he's on the job. Yeah, I'll, actually, while we're talking about that story, Brent, I, um, I really liked it, the way you approach it, because it's largely sort of a transcript in a way. Um, and, it is. Yeah, and I, I just thought that was a, it was an interesting way, because it like really puts you in the moment of what was happening. Uh, you know, it, and in a way, maybe right at first, it's almost a little disorienting, but that can be good. I mean, we're all science fiction readers. We're used to a little bit of that. But I think once you get into it, then it becomes really immediate. And I wonder- Renee, you're aboard a crashing spaceship. It's gonna be a little disorienting. Right. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know. And also I think uh, Rob um, said in the afterward that you were kind of instrumental in developing that line of, uh, I guess Beaverton and that, because we're on this one planet, but there's several colonies and that's, um, so I just wanted to, if you would talk about how your story and how it ties in in developing that particular uh, line of the colony story. Uh, well, my story actually predated the founder effect and it had been one I had been tinkering with and I had actually been thinking of a couple of other stories that I was going to try to link it with. And so the idea for Beaverton and the Paradise Colony and all of that actually was largely 
it's it's similar to the background I had for those stories that I had in my head. Um, so we kind of just took that as a chunk and moved it over to the founder effect. And um, one of the things I wanted to talk about was actually um, David and Mark's uh, when they were collaborating about the ship. Uh, Rob and I were actually, we had a notional idea. We had talked about it beforehand, but it was it was a ship. It was long. It had the landers on the outside. That was about it. Um, as we're getting information from David and Mark, we were actually going back and literally sitting in his office, re-sketching out, no, no, it'd have to look like this. Um, so we had... We took some stuff and we had a, a bare skeleton of it, but every time we got feedback from the authors, we'd take and then we'd go back and we'd adjust and we'd fit we'd fit the also, history. You would also redistribute the information to keep it current, mm -hmm. which was a, a really important part of why this wound up as uh, collaborative, as cross-connected as it did, because the other, all the writers in the project are getting input on, okay, this is what has been added to the mix by thus and so. And so you were able to, to establish those internal cross-connections. It's the, it's the little stuff, frankly, mm -hmm. that gives continuity to a sh to an anthology like this, it's not the big, massive, central core themes, although that's important too. But it's that sense that this is a lived-in universe where you have these cross references uh, that that people know and 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 have internalized. Mm -hmm. And what what Brent and 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 Rob were doing was allowing us to internalize that little stuff and the big stuff as we went along in building our part of the, of the world that is the entire anthology. I would get like notes from Rob or, or Sandra or, or Brent and it'd be like, so you said this in your story, you, you said a fire, can we make it an earthquake? Or, you know, you, you said 75 years, can we make it 80 or, or, you know, something like this. And it was just, yeah, no, not, yeah. You know, um, they, they were small details that I wasn't invested in and it made me rearrange maybe one or two little things on, on the, the edges of my story, but it, it was a very interesting sort of feedback process where it's like, okay, so we just want to fit this right here so that it fits in better with the whole scope. And it was kind of neat to be a part of. One, one of the things that was interesting to me is the extent to which the stories would have stood alone, but don't. Do, mm -hmm. do you follow what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. uh, because they could have. Um, I think any one of these, the, the stories in this anthology, could have survived as a solo work without all the rest of the universe around yeah. it. Um, and yet they are so identifiably parts of a whole when you put the entire thing together. Um, it's kind of like, in some ways, it's kind of like if you pick up the middle book of a series and the author has done a good enough job of giving you the background that you understand what's going on. 
But if you haven't read the earlier books, there's all kinds of detail in there that established readers are picking up on that you don't know to look for. And that's what I think we're looking at here. Any one of these stories could have been the middle book of the series. But by putting them all together, you get much greater texture within each individual story because one, of how they slot together. One of the central conceits of using the title The Founder Effect is that what really makes the genetics of the founders important down the line, in down time from the founding of a colony is to have something that causes the colony to go through a crisis. Uh, there is an illness that goes through. There is a natural disaster that, that kills off half your colony and all of the survivors. Uh, okay, now wait a minute. You're saying there's an event. He did not exactly. do an event to these poor people. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, so then what happened is, you know, in general instructions were that there would be something, there would be a disease or something to that effect. But uh, Mark and David set up the idea that they lose 75, 80% of their terraforming capability, and now they're having to do this the hard way. That led to why uh, the loss of beaver flight worked, because that was another example of uh, you have technology and you don't get all of it. Uh, and then there was the question of, uh, in Kathy's story, the uh, rancher ends up taming a native life form instead of the cattle that they had planned on, uh, all of which gives a way to build in uh, connections that lead to the whole story. But again, every one of these is a standalone story that is attributable 100% to the skill of the authors. Well, it really is. Talking about and we're what Dave, so modest about it too. That's yes, what I know. Astounds me, you know. Well, speaker, so you gave us the You gave us that situation where everything was going wrong, and we we had to help create situations where everything that is, as much went wrong as as much went right. In other words, to put it together. So yeah. that was that was part of the fun of doing this. You, you said you said break things, so we broke things. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I got it, I got it off to a good start. I broke everything. Yeah. <laughs> Well, another thing is, I think, I think that the 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 sabotage strand also grew out of what happened to Prometheus, mm -hmm. um, and that became sort of a central dynamic uh, that goes from that story that takes place when they're they're building the the the, the ships all the way through is this yeah. this element of of the technology having been deliberately sabotaged uh by a bunch of people you can only describe as dog in the manger at best um yeah. but the, and it gave us an opportunity to at sort of one remove uh look at the dangers of fanaticism Okay, um, because that's exactly what you're dealing with here. The 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 Earth firsters are like you can't be wasting you know all these resources doing this, doing that, doing the other. And if you try, we will make sure that everybody who goes dies. And okay? here's what's actually <laughs> neat. 
so so here's an absolute miracle that occurred and i gotta i gotta say this here's an absolute miracle that occurred i got david's story first david's story was the first one to come back in less than a hundred thousand words Hey, 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 hey. I have frequently written less than 100,000 words. But then he gave me two stories. What's an editor going to do when you're when your guys give you come back and say, yeah, well, we're going to do this story. We worked out the uh, we worked out the conflict, but we're going to give you two stories. And I go, what am I going to do with that? But but they came up with the idea of sabotage. I, I did not come up with the idea of sabotage. But by having David's story and Mark's story in hand to set the stage, then as other invited authors said, and we, and, and we as, as, as Kathy said, we gave updates to the other authors. And there were several instances in which the author says, I want to do this, and I have a vague idea of what I want to do, um, but let me find out what else is being done and Les Johnson came back to me and says, I can solve the is it or is it not sabotage question. And, um, and Chris Smith comes back, my other C. Smith, that to make things <laughs> confusing for me. Um, uh, Chris Smith says, yeah, I've got an idea of something we can do on the ship that will really pinpoint why this may or may not be sabotage and then uh, uh, and then Dan Hoyt comes back with something that is totally a okay we're not entirely sure this guy exists and maybe he's just a myth in response to the idea that there's sabotage and the and these threads started to build themselves well and then I coordinated with Dan where his story part of it takes place on the lander that's in beaver flight so his story might be the reason everything went wrong in my story, but then in response to David's first story is why everyone was there to save everyone. So sabotage was both the cause and response. Mm -hmm. and, and David was reading through the entire document, the entire manuscript, um, for continuity issues when when we got all the stories in and we put all the pieces together. And he comes back to me and says, this, this line in Sarah Hoyt's study, does this mean that we actually, that this person in Dan Hoyt's story was a real character? And I said, it's a myth. It's a legend. We don't know. And that's the whole point. We're going to leave it that way. And, you know, it just, it was, it turned out to be a, if I hadn't mentioned this, it was a lot of fun to do this project. That was part one of a two-part discussion of the Founder Effect. Tune in next week for the second half of the talk. And now we continue our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Salarian League. For hundreds of years, they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the star kingdom's uniform for half a century. 
Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now, the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now, Honor Harrington is coming for the Salarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. SLNS Quebec. Task Force 790, Beowulf System. Second stage activation. Rear Admiral Rutgers crowed as 1,200 impeller drives glared suddenly on his display. They're in, sir. They're in. I see it, Liang Tao, Capriotti said, and his smile was fierce. Whatever else happened, they'd gotten their birds inside the Mantis' defenses and... Enemy missile activation, Rutgers announced in a very different tone. Implement missile defense plan ABLE-7. Countermissiles slid into launchers, laser clusters trained out on the threat axis, decoys spun up, and ECM went active. The faces on Quebec's flag bridge were tight, tension and fear burred in the staff officers' voices, but there was no panic, and Capriotti's fists clenched on the armrests of his command couch. His estimate had been almost perfect, but at least their attack was going to go in two minutes before the Manti MDM swarmed TF-790. With any luck, they'd get good evaluation of the strike from all those recon drones before the task force's survivors raced across the hyperlimit. You knew from the minute they proposed, Fabius, that it was a high-risk op, he told himself. You knew it. You just didn't want to expect it to be this high-risk. No, he hadn't, and he hated what it was going to cost his people. But at least he'd get to see what happened to his targets first. Of course, you may not have very long to enjoy it, he thought mordantly. But a man can't have everything, and at least... Status change! One of Rutgers' ratings announced just as the first countermissiles roared from the launchers, we're picking up additional impeller wedges in system between our birds and their targets. That was another installment in our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Robert E. Hampson, Sandra L. Medlock, David Weber, Mark H. Wandry, Catherine L. Smith, and Brent Roeder. And thanks as always to podcast host Tony Daniel for letting me sit in while he travels back in time in a rented DeLorean to ensure his parents kiss at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, thereby ensuring he doesn't disappear from this timeline forever. Until next time, I'm David F. Shirerod, coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.